Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. As we reading from this text, certainly one of the questions that would arise as we reading in a few moments, that is, how should believers interpret or understand or view calamity and disaster? How should the church... Interpret and be able to explain the 9-11s. Be able to explain the Hurricane Katrina's. Be able to interpret and explain uh, tsunamis that, that wipe off almost a quarter of a million people. Be able to explain on a smaller scale. Things like terminal illness, personal loss. You know, a frequently asked question of the 9-11s and of the tsunamis and of the Katrinas that destroy cities and take lives is begins with, why would God... And some reading I've been doing in, in recent days just by one author, David Wells. He really takes to task the failure of the church to be able to answer that question well as these, these calamities have taken place. And in some sense, we're going to look at that today, but not a lot. That's not really going to be the focus of our text here. But as we experience even the, the personal calamities of our own lives, the trials that may come upon us. You know, how many times do we not find ourselves asking our, ourselves, why this? Why me? And we find that the world in which Jesus lived was not immune to such events because the world in which Jesus lived was a fallen world, just like the world in which we live and a fallen world that experiences the miseries of having rejected its God and having been, le been left to many of the calamities and the disasters that we witness taking place uh, almost on a weekly basis. And Jesus' response to that question, and really a question He asked Himself in our text, is that there are lessons to be learned. But... The lessons to be learned are not necessarily what we might conclude. And so we'll be looking at our text this morning and see what lesson is pressed upon His hearers, what lesson is pressed and applied upon us today as well. So begin reading with me here in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 13. We'll be looking at the first nine verses. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present 
who reported to him, reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Evidently, they were a group of, of people from Galilee came and made offering their sacrifices. While they were offering their sacrifices, Pilate has them killed. And so their blood is mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell? And again, another experience we don't really know anything about other than try here. But evidently, from what he says, that there was a tower that fell upon 18 people or killed. Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits or greater debtors than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to them, let it, said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. There are a few things that strike at our pride, like being told that we are wrong. Just something about when somebody corrects us, somebody addresses a matter with us, being telling that we are wrong, it it strikes at us, doesn't it? There's a can be a bit of an edge to it, even if unintended, just because we don't like to be told that. We are we have this issue of pride within our own heart. But we find as we go to the scripture that the, the biblical message to men, to all of mankind, goes even deeper than that. It goes deeper than striking and saying to us, you've done something wrong or you are wrong. The scriptural message, the biblical message about us goes something like this. Everything about you is wrong. Particularly in our relationship with God, those things that that pertain with our relationship with God, everything about you is wrong. It's more than than what we do; it is what we are that the Scripture addresses. And the scriptural the scriptural lesson is this: you do what you do because of what you are. You do wrong things because you are wrong, even at heart. Now, isn't that a message that you want to proclaim and influence a lot of people and make a lot of friends? 
But there certainly is the message of Scripture. And I think any of you who have, who have experienced the grace of God in your heart and your life, you know that it's so. You know that the Word of God came to your heart and exposed you, not just what you're doing, although that's an element of it, but exposed you as being wrong to the very depth of your being. It's not a message that's attractive, is it? The biblical message and the remedy to this situation is not, well, let's try harder. It's not, well, do the best that you can. The biblical message is, well, your effort counts for a lot. And the biblical message is not, sincerity is all that matters. The biblical remedy for our condition is really much more blunt than that. It's much more blunt than saying, you just keep trying. Or I know that you're, you have a real good effort. The biblical remedy is repent. The biblical message is repent because we can't fix it. We can't fix and change ourselves. The biblical message and the remedy is to repent because we have to admit our own hopelessness and our helplessness and to cry out for help. If you haven't picked it up this morning from either the sermon title or from the reading of the text, the thrust this morning of our our message is repentance. Now, as I prepared this message this week, I hear me carefully. I almost feel a sense of of the need to be apologetic. Almost. (laughs) Because I look at who is here, I look at the people that I know, I look at the people of Cornerstone, and I say, these people don't need to hear this message. And so I come with some sense of why am, am I thrust upon a message of repentance when the real sense to a large degree is you're preaching to the choir. You're preaching to people who've already heard. They know why hit it again. Well, here's my answer to that as I almost apologize. Number one, it's my responsibility to present to you the full counsel of Scripture. And going through the Gospel of Luke, I'm not going to skip it. Number two, it's a message that was emphasized by Jesus Christ. And, and it's, Jesus is dealing with that issue here. And it's a message that's been emphasized earlier in the Gospel of Luke. The message of repentance. Number three, there's always the possibility and the likelihood of those. And we know there's some in this room that have not repented. And we could identify within our own homes, families. We have some of our children. We know there's not been a true repentance. We're waiting to see the fruits of repentance in the lives of our children. Number four, there's always the likelihood and the possibility of a group this size. There are those who would believe that they've done everything they should to qualify for the kingdom of God, but they've never experienced true biblical repentance. So, What's the point then for those of us who have? Well, if nothing else, it's a reminder to us of the grace of God in our hearts. 
that if there has been that work and that of repentance in our own hearts, that we have a great debt of gratitude to our Lord and our Savior for granting to us that gift. So, I again, I'm not going to apologize for preaching to you a message on repentance. I, know, I understand it has something of the sense of almost evangelistic, and that's fine. And many of my messages, if you haven't noticed in recent weeks, have had that thrust. It's not my intent, but I think the text that we've been considering thrust us that way. And there certainly are those within our midst who need to have that thrust cast upon them. But also, just as believers in Christ, we need to hear the gospel. I don't want to get beyond where the gospel means nothing to me. We need to hear it. To be reminded it is by the grace of God through Christ that we are where we are in relationship to Him. And so the the gospel is good for all of us. Now, if we're going to talk about repentance, I think we need to make sure we understand what the word means. And let me just spend a little bit of time with some defining of what the word means. Now, some have taken the word and they've broken down simply etymologically. They said, well, the word means you break it down, change mind. The word repent means simply a change of mind. And it's not true. We don't define words by doing etymology. We define words by context. We define words by looking at how those words are used. And so we don't go and break down a word and say, this is what the word means, this is all that it means. So the word of repentance could be broken down and say that it means a change of mind, but I'm, I'm using here just the, the words of a, a Bible dictionary that I have here. In a theological and an ethical sense, it's a fundamental and a thorough change in the hearts of men from sin and toward God. So there's more involved here than just the changing of one's mind. There is a fundamental transformation, a thorough change in the hearts of an individual in regard to sin and in regard to God. This is from uh, Unger's Bible Dictionary. It says, Although faith alone is the condition for salvation, repentance is bound up with faith and inseparable from it. Since without some measure of faith, no one can truly repent. And repentance never attains to its deepest character till the sinner realizes through saving faith how great is the grace of God against whom he has sinned. Repentance and faith are inseparable. That's what he's saying here. And I very much appreciate seeing that here. Because there are those who have insisted that the, that the message of repentance is not to be proclaimed. And I don't know where they get that from. That you call men to repentance, that you're calling them to a, a work gospel. And that's not the Scriptures. That you're adding something to faith. That's not the Scriptures. And, and it's so well stated here that there is a, there is a complementing, there is a completion of saving faith with repentance. Saving repentance. If I might use that word. So, when we talk about repentance, we're not talking about just an intellectual assent. We're talking about a thorough transformation of one's mind 
toward sin and towards God. Now, we have this call to repentance here given to us. If you're going to have such a call, we need to determine a response. And if we're going to determine a response, we need to think about the the call. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And again, I understand and I trust that I am preaching to many of those this morning who would say, yes, this is true of me. I have experienced this. I have responded to the call to repentance. But for those who have not, I encourage you to take to heart the messages we consider. And first of all, I want you to consider, as we ought to consider, the origin of this call. Consider the origin of this call. And our text indicates to us that this call to repentance comes from none other but the lips of Jesus Christ Himself. It is Jesus Christ who says there in verse 3, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So it is Jesus Himself so then we've got to come to terms, well, who is Jesus? And I'm not going to take a, take a lot of time here in trying to, de- to defend the, the deity of Jesus Christ. I'm going to make some assumptions here. That by and large, that we are a group of people that we embrace that truth. That Jesus is God. And so this is Jesus, or this is God speaking for God. And when He speaks, the message that He speaks is repent. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, very clearly that when Jesus began His ministry, what were the words recorded from Matthew that came forth from His mouth? The words were, Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Also note here the authority with which Jesus speaks here in our text. Verse 3. The first three words. I tell you. Verse 5. I tell Tell you. Who is Jesus appealing to for his authority? Jesus is appealing to none other than his own authority as God himself. I speak to you as God himself. It's very closely parallel to what we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus there says, I say to you, you have heard this, but I say to you. It's an indication of His authority. I tell you this. I don't need it supported by anyone else. I don't need it a secondary witness to come in to back it up. I speak to you as God. And the message of God is this. Except or unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He is speaking with all the authority of God. And in fact, we find that the consistent expectation and the requirement placed upon men by God throughout the Scriptures, has been repent. Track with me here a few passages here. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all these. If you want to write these down, I'm going to, I'll be reading these. Psalm chapter 7, verse 12. If a man does not repent, he will, speaking of God, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Jeremiah fifteen seven. I will windle them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. Why? They did not repent of their ways. 
Ezekiel 14, 6. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God, Repent and turn away. From your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Ezekiel 18.32 For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Then we come to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus immediately picked up the identical message as he, as he began His earthly ministry. Now, there have been some who have said, well, it's a Jewish message. That was the message to the Jews. It was the message to the Old Testament Jews. You repent. And it was a message that Jesus proclaimed to the Jews. You repent. And I don't know where people get such an idea from. Certainly not from scriptures, but in response to that, let me say this: When Jesus, first of all, we have in the book of Acts, chapter two, verse thirty-eight, Jesus, Peter at Pentecost, granted this was to a Jewish audience. There, Peter's message is to repent. They say, "What must we do?" His message: repent. Also recorded in chapter three, verse nineteen, but also note in Acts chapter seventeen. Verse 30, there Paul is at Athens, and this is what he says, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere, there's no specification here whether it's Jew or Gentile, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Then Acts 26, verses 19 through 20, when Paul stands before Agrippa, and he says this, Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So as Jesus picks up the message here of repentance, this is not a new message. This is always, this is the consistent message of God to not only His people as revealed in the Old Testament, but to all people everywhere are called to repent. Notice here, the universal application that Jesus makes in verses 3 and verse 5. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all. You will all likewise perish. They might be among those who would conclude that such who were slain by Pilate as they were offering their sacrifices, that those were some who should have repented. They might be those who concluded that the 18 upon which this tower of Siloam fell, Siloam fell, that those were those who should have repented. They had some things they ought to have repented of. And you think, incidentally, None of us are too far removed from that mentality. Are we? You know, we, we examine crises, whether it's on a personal level or on a, or on a larger scale. And we start this process. First of all, there's, there's the wonder of it all, the kind of the, the surprise. And then we, we, start, we start gravitating. And we start gravitating toward this mentality that Jesus actually addresses right here. 
do you suppose? Have you concluded, or would you think, or in your opinion, were these Galileans greater sinners than all the other Galileans because this happened to them? In other words, God has judged them. They must have got they must have done something and boy God let them have it. Or the eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell. And you some of you would say, Well, I wouldn't think that. I know better than that. I know my theology better than that. That I can't look out and determine that what happens in the world out there, that God has bring a just judgment on based on what's happened. That may be true, but I dare say that in your personal experience you'll do the exact same thing. How many times when you begin to evaluate, you begin to try to interpret the events that have taken place in your life, when you begin to examine your experience, do you not so many times come back to the question of, why me? And then you start answering that question. Don't you? And you start going through your list of, man, I, I know why this is happening to me. And we've got this little... Maybe there's something. Oh, I did this. Listen. You can no more make that assessment on a personal level unless it's very clearly related as a consequence of sin. Some sins have consequences attached and you can put them together. You rob a bank, you go to jail. Why am I in jail? That's not a hard question. But we cannot evaluate on a personal level any more than we can on a worldwide level, worldwide level of why this is taking place. It's not our place. God doesn't tell us. He doesn't answer those questions with the specifics of, here's the reason. However, the clear reason for a child of God, if you want to have reason, is this. You want to know the answer to the question, why? Two things. Why me? Why this? Number one, for the glory of God. God has chosen to bring honor and glory to His name through this event. And what happened there? You know, we read that account in John. Why is this man blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? Born blind and is it his sin? I mean, what kind of a question is that? And he said, it's not because of either one. It's but for the, that the glory of God might be manifested here. That's the first, first part. The second part is this. It's for your good or for your sanctification. I keep coming back to that over and over again. The question is not, what do I look back to and try to determine why has this happened? The question is, is God using this? Is God a God who is able to, to bring calamity, trials of my own experience, and to use it for my good and for my sanctification? And the answer to that is yes. That's the reason if you want reason, for the glory of God and for the good of His people. He is accomplishing His sanctification in you. You say, well, wait a minute. You don't know what I'm going through and I don't see much sanctification coming out of this. I don't feel. I don't look. I don't act any more sanctified. If you can come through a trial, a crisis of life, 
And eventually, when you get to the other side of this thing, you are still glorifying God in His goodness and His perfections. You are being sanctified. Because there are a lot of people who go through the trials that we go through and they come out at the end of them bitter. They come out attacking God, angry with God. But if you can come out worshiping God, there's a process of sanctification going on there. So, perhaps the, the, the thing, the case to be is give it time. Maybe you're not there yet. Give it time. Give God time. But trust, you don't have to have the answer. And don't look back and don't put yourself on a guilt trip. He didn't tell you. Why? Aren't you glad? You know, we like to live in this cause and effect world. And we like to live with a sense that there's, this, there's, this, there's justice in the world. There's fairness to it all. We don't understand the ways of God. It is God's world, not ours. It is God's world to act as He will for His glory to accomplish what He intends for His eternal purposes, not us. I don't have to understand it. I'm just a part of the plan. If God understands it, so be it. And let it go. But we're not so far removed from this mentality here, are we? When Jesus addressed that, would you suppose this? We need to be careful at how we try to evaluate the, the experiences of our own lives. So Jesus, He takes it and He makes this universal application. He says, you will all perish. But He also makes it an absolute essential. That one word, verse 3, Unless, unless you repent. Verse 5, unless you repent. There's no way around it. Unless you repent. This is an absolute essential. You must repent or you will perish. So, to despise or to embrace the call to repentance, we must consider the origin. The words of Jesus. The words of God Himself. So in our sharing of Christ, inviting them into Christ, the message, the message that we proclaim, the message of evangelism and outreach is calling men to repentance. Now, that may not be the first thing that comes out of your mouth when you're sharing Christ, but somewhere, and you may not even use the word. You can call someone to repentance without using the word repentance, incidentally. However, the idea that you're thrusting forth to men as you share Christ is that you've got to recognize your condition before God. You've got to be willing to admit your fallenness, your alienation from God, and that you can do nothing for yourself and to turn away from everything that you've once embraced, every hope that you ever had, that this might secure heaven for you. Turn away from that and own nothing but Christ. That's what you call men to. We're not interested in calling men to have to experience a full and more complete life. 
You know, you've got your, you got your work in order. You've got your family in order. But have you got your, your religious sphere of your life in order? No, Jesus didn't come in to fill a compartment. He comes in to be Lord and Master of all that you are, all that you possess. And it's to renounce your rule to your own life, to your own heart, to your own decisions. That's to repent. It's to let God be God in my life and me to take the place as the servant of God. Repentance. It's fleeing and it involves fleeing to Jesus Christ, recognizing that He is our only refuge. So God is calling all men everywhere, all women everywhere, all boys, all girls everywhere. He is calling them to repentance, to admit, to acknowledge your sinfulness, your need of Christ. You've nothing apart from Him and to relinquish any hope that you have apart from Christ Himself. Repentance. And if you don't repent, you perish. That's the second thing. The options of the call. Sure, we understand that it's clear by its origin because it comes from God Himself, but what exactly is at stake here? What difference does one's response make to this call to repentance? Well, Jesus puts it in very clear words, doesn't He? Verses 3 and 5, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The word perish there means to experience loss, to be ruined or to be destroyed. And when you consider here that when Jesus speaks, He speaks with absolute certainty of such dire consequences. This isn't guess. This isn't something. Just be aware that if you don't repent, you might have some trouble down the road. It's not what He's saying. He is saying if you do not repent, you will perish. You will be lost. You will be ruined. You will be destroyed. And as God, He would know such things, wouldn't He? He would know the need that we have to repent. And He would know the consequences that we face if we refuse or we fail to repent. But only does He know such things as God. He determines such things. See, Jesus isn't talking about Something that may happen somewhere. That gives some thought to it. Jesus is talking about those things which He controls. We saw earlier back in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, when Jesus says, you need to fear the one who has the authority to cast you into hell. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, verses that we've referenced very often, and there Jesus says, there are going to be those who say to me. They're going to say to me on that day. They're going to stand before God. They're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And they're going to say to Jesus Christ, have we done all these things? And I will declare, I will declare, I will determine, I will sentence them. I will declare, depart from me. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus there speaks of when the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, when the Son of Man comes and He's seated on His glorious throne, that all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them. 
He will separate them one from another. And what's going to be the basis of that separation? It's not going to be how wealthy you are. It's not going to be what nationality you are. The basis of the separation is this. Who are the sheep and who are the goats? And the sheep are those who have repented. And the goats are those who remain in their sin. Jesus says, I will separate them. You know, you're not going to slip in on Him. So when Jesus says here to these people, He says, you need to repent or you're all going to likewise perish. He is speaking as God Himself. I not only know these things to be so, I have determined that these things will be so. You will stand before Me. So the message to the unsuspecting people of Jesus' day. Let me tell you something. That wasn't a message that Jews expected that they needed to hear. Repent. All of you. All of us. Repent. Yes, his message is you repent or perish. It's pretty black and white, isn't it? You don't get much more clear than that. And it's more here than it has in mind here. It's more than just a physical death. That what he has in mind here is a spiritual ruin. It's the destruction. It is the agonizing of the soul for all of eternity. So we see the contrast as the verse that I read from Ezekiel a few moments ago. Ezekiel 18.32. What is the Word of God there? It says, repent and live. So it's either repent or perish, or it's repent and live, truly live, live life to its fullness. So the rejection of this message, the refusal to repent, is one of eternal consequences. It's the difference between standing and continuing in enmity and opposition with God, or being in a position of God's favor, having been reconciled, having God's blessing granted to you. It is the difference between remaining estranged and alienated from God and be, or being brought to a place of fellowship and communion with God in the family of God as the children of God. It's the difference between eternal bliss and benevolence, the benevolent presence of God, and the eternal judgment and the wrath of God. So that's the difference in heaven and hell. That's the difference in eternity with God and without, apart from God. It's not that God's not there. It's just if you're a child of God, He is there in His benevolent presence. And if you're not a child of God, He is there as well. But it is His fury. It is His wrath. It is His judgment for the sins which we've committed against Him. So God has warned that the options for man in relation to Him are only twofold. You repent or you perish. Pretty simple. Repent or perish. And finally, we see the, the opportunity of the call which is given to us in verses 6 through 9. Jesus here gives a parable, it says there in verse 6, and He began telling this parable. 
This parable about this man, with a, he has a fig tree that's been planted in the vineyard. He comes looking for fruit, doesn't have any. He's calls to the vineyard keeper. I've looked for three years, there's nothing, cut it down. And the vineyard keeper, keeper on behalf of that tree says, let me work with it a little while longer. Let me dig, put some fertilizer around it, give some special care and attention to this tree. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If it doesn't, cut it down. Well, certainly, the clearest application of that parable is an indictment against the Jews of his day. The message to the Jews of that day were very clear from John the Baptist, repent. Very clear from Jesus himself, repent. And so he tells his story indicting the unrepentant state of the Jews in that day. Not responding to this message of repentance. But there are two truths that are indicated by this parable. One is this. There's impending judgment by God upon His unfruitful, unrepentant people. In fact, the picture you get here, the picture that you get here from this parable is that it's, He's ready to come with His judgment upon this unfruitful tree. This tree that is not bearing the fruit that's consistent with being what it's supposed to be. And so the application would be it's the failure of the people of God who are not bearing the fruit that's consistent with being the people of God. That if you are a child of God, you ought to look like it. You ought to act like it. And you don't. You're not bearing the fruit of being the people of God. And so now he calls and looks and he goes, there's a new fruit the fruit of genuine repentance. We saw back in Luke, for those of us who were tracking way back there in Luke chapter 3, when, when John the Baptist was baptizing and he was proclaiming a message of repentance and there were those who were coming to him to be baptized. And what did John the Baptist say? Well, come on in. No, he said, you bring forth fruit that is consistent with Repentance. You bring forth fruit that demonstrates that there's really been a change of heart, a transformation of life. Not something that you've done to yourself, but something that's taken place from the inside out that God has done on your behalf. When God changes a man, repentance is obvious. Bring forth the fruit of repentance. And so that's the call here. It's this fruit of genuine repentance. And then Acts chapters 26 20, we read just a few earlier too, where there Paul's, Paul's message there, he proclaimed that to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Well, what are deeds that are appropriate to repentance? They are simply deeds of righteousness. So that when John the Baptist, when he was baptized, they came, and the soldiers said, What should we do? He says, be honest in your dealings with men. Don't use your position of authority abusively. Do acts of kindness. Acts of grace. Acts, actions that demonstrate that you're not the person you once were. 
So the fruit of repentance is a life that's, that's experiencing this work of sanctification. So the first truth of there's an impending judgment by God upon His unfruitful, unrepentant people. The second truth is this. There's a limited opportunity. There's a time of mercy. There's an opportunity, a limited opportunity, that's provided for men to repent. And so the point being this, that the mercies of God are not extended forever. There is a day where the mercies of God come to an end. So the failure to seize the opportunity presented to them of repentance, the failure to seize that will bring forth His fury. So you see it in the picture there, this, this, this parable that He gives there. Perhaps, perhaps the, the wrath of God will be stayed by His mercies and as is portrayed by this vine keeper who comes and he pleads for an, an additional year. But the result in the end of verse 9 is if it doesn't change, the result is the same. Cut it down. It will perish. It can mean death. Or it can mean just very simply that there's no more a taste of grace in this life. When we reject the opportunity that God affords to us to repent, we refuse to repent, we refuse that opportunity, that there comes the day when the message will no longer strike any sense of accord at all. Given over to our sin... And there's no interest, no inclination, no desire to repent. So the time of repentance is now. The opportunity for repentance is now. This is not an open invitation that stays open time after time after time. And you don't know when the day ends. So to all who hear the message of repentance, the day for salvation, today... Is it not? Today is the day of salvation. And let's be warned by what the Scripture tells us in Hebrews twelve seventeen of Esau. He sold his birthright to his brother. And here are the words of Hebrews twelve seventeen. It says that Esau, he found no place for repentance. Even though he sought it with tears. To come to a place where you recognize... I need repentance, but it's not happening. It's not happening. That repentance is a gift of God's grace and is a gift that God extends to for a season of His determination, not ours. So to all who hear the message of repentance, the time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time repentance. This is a message to the heart of all mankind. It is also the message of the church. This is the message which we must proclaim. Calling men, calling women to repentance. Turning away. To experience the, to experience the transforming power of the grace of God and understand that it's not a work that we perform. It's not a call to do the best that you can do and fit in sorrow for your sin. That's not what it is either. 
It's recognizing that you need the grace of God to repent. It's recognizing that our repentance is too feeble. It is too poor. It is too incomplete. It is too imperfect. That the repentance that is unto life is a repentance that God grants to us. That God grants to you. More than just a sorrow. More than just a regret. But is a longing to experience a deliverance from what we have done. And a deliverance from what I am. So what is the message of calamity and disaster? You know, they've, Jesus mentions two events right here. What's the message? The message of such events is this. You need to consider your days. You need to consider the brevity of your own life. You need to consider the possibility of the suddenness of death coming upon you. And you need to think about your own spiritual preparedness. Are you ready? If that had been you, would you be ready? The people didn't go into the the place to offer their sacrifices anticipating Pilate coming upon them. The people didn't walk by the Tower of Siloam anticipating, this is my day. And yet, so suddenly death came upon them. Are you prepared? Had you been thrust into eternity? And that's the perishing that he's speaking of. He's not saying that you'll perish in the same way that has these visible manifestations of being a horrendous death. He said there's a death that there's a perishing that's far beyond what they're experiencing in their body. And you'll experience the same. So repentance is the message to all men everywhere. We must proclaim it. We must obey it. And I've got to ask this question. Have you repented? Very serious. Have you truly repented? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words to us. And that a real sense, as your people, we continue to repent, but we thank you for your work of grace that's brought us to the end of ourselves. And Lord, I ask you to take these words and these truths and you apply them today as, as appropriate. I could look around this room and be easily deceived. I ask you to take these words and apply them to, to young hearts where they can understand them. Lord, our desire to see our children come to you and somewhere in that process there's going to be repentance. So work graciously. We thank you for this reminder and this word to our own hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.